So the last couple of weeks, we have looked intently at worship and how our individual lifestyles of worship directly impact worship in the community of faith that we belong to. Those are not separate truths, but how you worship personally and what your worship life looks like impacts worship when the church comes together corporately. And so today we're really going to kind of continue that idea. We're going to continue exploring the connection between personal and spiritual, uh, the personal spiritual life and the corporate spiritual life by looking at how God has designed the biblical community to be rooted and growing together to advance in holiness. And holiness is directly tied, our personal holiness and holiness as a church is directly tied to our worship and how sincere our worship is. Because if you remember, worship comes from the heart and holiness is all about what is in our heart. And so we're going to start with a definition of what is holiness. If you have one of the handouts and you want to do the fill in the blank notes, we're going to start there. I want us to do much like we did with worship where we we at least have a working definition of what holiness is so that we can kind of keep that in our minds. And I'll say up front that for a lot of us, perhaps, and a lot of Christians and churchgoers, the idea of holiness equates to rule-keeping in some form or fashion. That holiness means not doing anything wrong. And I hope we see as we explore today that that is not a complete definition of what holiness is. Holiness involves two things. It involves both a separation and a dedication. Holiness involves both a separation and a dedication. To be holy is first to be set apart from that which is common. It is to be set apart from that which is common. Now, by common, I mean that which is common to man. Things such as worldliness, idolatry, which is the worship of created things rather than the Creator God, and sin. Those are some examples of common things that man deals with or uh, is part of their life. And so holiness involves being separated or set apart from that which is common. But it is not merely a separation. You could have a person who thinks nothing of God and says, you know what, I want to live a morally decent life. I want to live a life free from what I see plaguing so many people. I want to live a life free from materialism and greed and hate. And that's the kind of life I want to live. And while that is good in some respects, that in no way is holiness. Because holiness is not just being separated from something, but it also involves a dedication. So to be holy is to be separated from that which is common and to be dedicated to God and His glory. Holiness, or to be holy, is to be separated from that which is common and simultaneously be dedicated to God and His glory. Holiness, in the highest sense, belongs to God. We looked at this a few weeks ago. If you were here 
for our Advent series. The very first message of Advent was called God is Perfect. And so we talked about holiness in that sermon, that God does not conform to some standard of goodness that we set upon Him, but God is the standard. God is the essence of moral excellence. He is the essence of righteousness, of justice, of purity. And His holiness is beyond anything we can comprehend or we can explain. We may can do some things to point toward it, which is good, but it is beyond our ability to reason. So you have all types of passages in Scripture that tell us this. 1 Samuel 2.2 is an example. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. There is no one holy like God is holy. And so because God is holy, anything that belongs to God is also holy. Anything that is sourced in God is holy. And so when you read your Bible, if you especially look in the Old Testament, you will see holy applied to many things. You will see holiness applied to anything that God has set apart and devoted to Himself. You see holy places mentioned. You see holy objects mentioned. And certainly you see a holy people mentioned. Our first reading this morning in Leviticus that Rob went through for us, God tells the people of Israel, follow me, conform to my word, obey my word. And He tells them that your motivation to do this, why you should follow Me, why you should conform to My Word, is because I have set you apart from every nation on the earth. They weren't to follow Him and obey to be set apart. They were to follow Him and obey because He had set them apart. And in verse 26 in Leviticus 20, God says of them, And I loved how Rob pointed this out because it is striking. You shall be holy to me. So think about what he's saying. You, you will be separated from everything that is common. And you will be dedicated to me and my glory. I have chosen you from every people on the face of the earth to be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy, and I have separated you that you should be mine. So do you see that there? I have separated you that you would be dedicated to me. I have set you apart that you would be devoted to me. I want to pause here for a moment and just say that this is one of those things This is one of those truths of Scripture. This is one of those declarations that God makes that if this does not strike us as profound and glorious and lovely and a gift beyond measure, then we're not hearing with spiritual ears and a spiritual heart. For the God of the universe to look upon the earth in everything that is common, Everything that is riddled with idolatry 
and the common problems of man, of worldliness and sin, and for God to look upon that earth and say, you're going to be mine. 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 And I am going to set you apart from everyone. You're not going to be common. You are going to be devoted to me. There is no greater gift you could ever receive in your life than that. And if we find anything else more marvelous, more glorious, more alluring to us than that, it is a desperate sign that we need to pray about our hearts. God did this for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, not because of their work, but because of His sovereign grace. They didn't do anything to get His attention. They didn't do anything to make themselves more lovely or more worthy than anyone. God sovereignly chose them. He said, you're mine. He freed them from slavery in Egypt. And He freed them from slavery in Egypt to give them an inheritance in His kingdom. And as He frees them and as He's moving them toward an inheritance, He gives them laws. He gives them laws of conduct. And those laws of conduct are to further show their distinct nature. A lot of this in the Old Testament, if you read it, it gets a, it gets a little uh, deep in clean and unclean and eat this and don't eat this and be around this, don't be around that. But every one of those laws was to show the people of God as distinct from all the nations. They were to be unique. The issue was, though, that those laws of conduct were unable to do the one necessary work, which was to create holiness within their heart. If you noticed in that reading this morning, Leviticus, excuse me, in Hebrews 3.10, in the sermon text that John read a moment ago, in Hebrews 3 and verse 10, the writer of Hebrews is actually referring to this people in the Old Testament when he says, they always go astray in their heart. That external rule-keeping that they were called to was unable to change what they love. So God, in the course of time, sent Jesus. He sent Jesus who leads the greater exodus, who delivers a chosen people, but not just from the Jews, but from among every nation, every tribe, every tongue, all over the earth, God delivers people through Jesus in the greater exodus, freeing them not from a country or a nation, but from sin. And He frees them to give them an inheritance so that they can be gathered to God. And Jesus is able to do what the external rule-keeping could not do. Jesus is able to transform our hearts. He is able to make us holy in our hearts. What we talked about in worship. Bowing down in worship, in adoration and honor of Him. And in the New Testament, this set-apart people are called the church. The ecclesia, made up of what the New Testament calls saints. And saints mean the hallowed ones. 
the consecrated ones, the set apart ones. Jesus has done the fulfillment of what the Old Testament was pointing to. And so Paul celebrates this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Paul celebrates what Jesus has done to the church and for the church. And he says, Blessed be God. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Like the people of the Old Testament, we don't do anything to get God's attention. We haven't done something to make ourselves worthy. Before the foundations of the world, God chose the church. That we would be holy and blameless before Him. When you get into the New Testament, I want to show you briefly that the New Testament speaks of holiness three ways. Your holiness in Christ is spoken of three ways in Christ, excuse me, in the New Testament. Number one, we have been made holy. Speaks of holiness that way. You have been made holy. This is a completed reality. If you are a true believer, if you're a true follower of Christ, you have been made holy. Colossians 1.21 shows us this. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. You who were once far from God, you've been reconciled. That is a completed reality. You've been made holy. You've been made perfect before God. But that's not the only sense in which the New Testament talks about holiness. The second way it talks about it is we are being made holy. So we have been made holy and we are being made holy. So there is what we see in the New Testament, this ongoing spiritual transformation by Christ in the lives of those who belong to Him. He has declared you holy, and now He is working in you to transform you in holiness. Romans 6.22 says, Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get or the result that you get from this leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit bringing our nature and conduct more and more and more under the influence of Jesus. Sanctification is God working in the life of a believer to bring you more and more and more under the influence of Jesus and of His Spirit. So if you are a believer, you should see this happening in your life. You should see in your life this moving away from what is common to man. You should be able to see it. Maybe not every day, but as you look over time, you will see God moving you away from that which is common 
that which is worldly. Worldly thinking, worldly actions, worldly attitudes. Just slowly over time, you see God's moving you away from that and He's moving you more and more to be dedicated to Him. What you care about will change. What you get excited about will change. What you get angry over will change. How you relate to people will change because He's sanctifying you. We don't, as parents, take our kids to the doctor every week and measure their growth. Every day you don't take a baby or a small infant and see their height and see their weight. But over a course of time, maybe every year you do. And the doctor looks at their life and compares them to the last year they were there and he looks at growth. And if in one of those checkups he sees them and he sees no growth, over time there's nothing happening, he will say to you, we might have a problem. Sanctification is a reality for a believer. Are you in Christ? Are you growing? You will. And if there's no growth, then there's an issue of some kind. Remember that all-important verse from Hebrews 10.14 that we looked at a few weeks ago when we started this series. For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we have been made holy, we are being made holy, and finally we will be made holy. When Christ returns for His church, this process of sanctification will come to completion. What He has declared us to be and what He is working on in our lives will be completed and we will live in the fullness of perfection before Him forever. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's. We are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we will see Him as He is. So we are His children now, but what we will be one day has not yet appeared. So, in all of this, this foundational view of holiness that we've just looked at, I want us to take that foundational view and I want us to turn our attention to the role of biblical community in our sanctification. And take everything we just looked at, a lot of those verses, and may want to look at some of those later on your own. But take that high-level view of holiness, and now let's consider the role of biblical community in that process of us being made holy. If you have a Bible or Bible app, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. I just want us to see this and read it together. Because I think this command brings together a lot of what we have just talked about. 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul writes, Since we have these promises, let me pause there, he is talking about the promises of God drawing near to us and making us His sons and daughters of the faith. 
So I think we can apply that to what we have read. We have the promise that we have been made holy. We have the promise that we are being made holy. We have the promise that we will be made holy. And so Paul says, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Church, we are called to bring holiness to completion. Now, if you're paying attention, you might say, wait a minute. Didn't you just say that sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit to make us holy? Yes, I did. I'm glad you caught that. The the reality of what the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is working in us to sanctify us is not contradicting what Paul just said or vice versa. When Paul says to the church, let us cleanse ourselves because we have these promises from every defilement of body and spirit and let's bring holiness to completion, he is not contradicting the reality that it is the Holy Spirit who does the work in us. We are called to strive for holiness, but we are called to strive for it in a specific way. If you were just to go over by yourself and say, okay, I got to be good. Got to stop sinning. Got to stop having these temptations. Got to stop having these thoughts. Got to get more serious about God. Got to start reading my Bible more. Got to start praying more. I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do this and this. I'm going to buy this book. I'm going to get this plan. I'm going to get me a bunch of accountability. I'm going to do this. Like you've come. You've already lost and you had not even started. That is a recipe for failure. We are called to strive for holiness in such a way that both acknowledges and relies on God's power to reach it. There is a way for us to go after holiness, understanding that only God can bring it and asking Him for His power to do it. God, would you help me? Would you make me holy? Would you take away temptation? Would you keep me from sin? God, would you help me to want to pray? God, would you overcome my will that wants to just do all types of useless things rather than read your word? Would you help me there? God, would you put the right people in my life? Would you put me in the right state of mind? God, would you do this in me? That is a labor, but it is a labor of pursuing The help of God for holiness. So Paul means what he says. Bring it to completion in the fear of God. Bring it to completion relying on God and His power. Not on yourself. Our labor is to prayerfully seek the Spirit to give us right desires. To give us the necessary empowerment of our will to remove from our life anything that's dishonorable to God. Paul actually tells Timothy to pray that or to do that. Remove what is dishonorable so that you will be an honorable vessel. That's a bold prayer, but it is one we should pray. God, would you show me anything dishonorable in my life that I need to lay down? Would you show me anything that's not pleasing to you that I may lay it down? And then God, will you give me the power to lay it down because I won't do it without you?
We pray to be set apart. We pray to be made useful to Him. Is there anything that you could desire in all of your life greater than to be useful to God in His service, in His commission, to His glory on this earth? Nothing is more weighty than that. Nothing we could ever hope to do or experience or accomplish is greater than that. And the Bible shows us that this bringing holiness to completion is designed by God to be done in and through community. There is no picture of this labor toward bringing holiness to completion that is not done within the context of a church. That is not done within the context of a local body of believers. Our goal in this series, this Rooted and Growing, is to see with spiritual eyes from God's Word the essential nature of the church. I believe the essential nature of the church has been called into question. Especially in this last year. But honestly, I think it's been called into question my whole life. What is the role of the church? What is the necessity of it? Many of us grew up in a place where church was this event. It's what you did on Sundays. If you were really religious, Sunday morning, Sunday night. If you were super religious, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. It's an event. You go to it. You go to church. You go home from church. Church was not the place you were transparent with anyone. Church was the place you dressed up really nice and you were on your best behavior. Don't you dare let anyone know you're messed up. Now, some of us didn't have that experience, but many people growing up in the South have had just that experience. The church is essential, but not for some of the reasons that we've grown up thinking. Holiness is not optional. I hope you've seen that. Holiness is not a good option of the Christian life. If we're not growing in holiness, there is a problem. And likewise, the role of the community of faith and the role that the community of faith plays in our advancement in holiness is also not optional. You can't say, I want to, I want to be holy, but I'm just going to work on that on my own. The Bible doesn't give you that option. Just this week, I, I was watching some YouTubers that I enjoy. They have this travel vlog, and I, I love watching them, and they're a very neat couple. And uh, I was listening to them this week, and they've had a, they've suffered a loss in their family, and so they were talking a little bit about their faith as they walked through this loss. And they identify, I believe, as Christians, but in their comments about their faith, they, they said that their belief was as long as you had Jesus in your heart, church was, church was fine, but it wasn't necessary. They were really talking about the fact that they didn't, they didn't go to church even though they were Christians. They, they had Jesus in their heart, so they probably needed to go to church some, but it really wasn't necessary. And here's the reality. 
So many Christians think just that way. And it is evidenced by one of two things. Either what they say or how they live. The evidence of our lives, either by what we say or by how we schedule our time and how much we put ourselves in a congregation of believers speaks to whether or not we believe church is necessary. The community of faith is necessary. And what I believe the writer of Hebrews expressed in our sermon text today is quite different from that idea that church is good but not necessary. We are giving a warning in this Hebrews 3 text. We're giving a lot of warnings in Hebrews. It may help to understand the context that it's being written to Jewish Christians or to perhaps Gentiles who had identified with the Jewish faith. And this is early in the church, in the life of the church, and the church had come under a lot of persecution. Things were getting difficult to be a Christian. And some of these Hebrew Christians, or these people who had joined the Christian faith out of the Hebrew religion, they were pondering or actively going back to their old religion. They were leaving the Christian faith and walking away from it for some reason of unbelief or persecution. So there's a lot of warnings in Hebrews about not doing that, about staying firm. And in Hebrews 3, we're giving a warning about a hardened heart, that it is possible for people, even those connected to the church, to have a hardened heart. To a person that has a hardened heart, they hear God's voice, but they don't pay attention to it. That's why the writer said, if today you hear his voice, listen, don't harden your heart. Those with a hardened heart, his word doesn't have influence over them. They may read his word, they may hear his word, but it doesn't influence them. Doesn't change them because in their heart, they really don't care about God's will. And those who have a hardened heart, that hardening may be slow at first. But eventually it accelerates into what Hebrews calls a falling away. Now, the very term falling away shows that these individuals had some connection to the person of Jesus and His church. You don't fall away from something that you were not somehow connected to. But I believe that ultimately they fall away because their connection to Jesus was merely external. It was not from the heart. But you and I can't know that about someone. You and I can't even know that about ourselves. And in saying that, I am not attempting to create any doubt in our lives or our hearts about our salvation. I think the Bible cares about us having assurance of faith. But I want to be true to what's being written. And what is being written to us, according to Hebrews, is the way that you know that you've come to share in Christ is if you hold your confidence firm to the end. That's how you ultimately know. 
You hold on. You don't give up. You may wander, but it's not long. You get brought back. You ultimately know you're in Christ because you hold firm to the end. And so to all of these professed believers, some who may have a true connection to the faith, some who may have only an external connection, the writer of Hebrews says, take care. Church, take care, which is a term that means watch your heart. Watch yourself. Don't don't come to an altar, pray a prayer, and say, yes, I'm good. Watch your life. Watch your heart. Take care. Make sure true holiness is in you. Take care that just in case there is in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that would lead you to fall away from the living God, watch yourself. And what he goes on to say, the writer of Hebrews, is don't just care for yourself. Don't just stop there. But you are also to be concerned for one another. The church is called to be concerned regarding the holiness of one another. We are to be rooted and growing together. And we are commanded here to mutually exhort one another toward Jesus, toward holiness, as a means of protection from the deceitfulness of sin. We're actually commanded to do it every day. Exhort one another every day. Every day in our lives, there should be someone we have exhorted toward Jesus. And our immediate thought may be, well, no one's exhorting me to Jesus. But here's the beauty. If we're all exhorting people to Jesus, we'll be a recipient of that. But you can't do anything about what people are doing for you. You can do and control everything that you're doing for others. So exhort other people and trust God. We're commanded to do this every day. Mutually exhort one another. And we're told this is a protection against the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is trying to deceive us. Sin is trying to deceive our hearts and our minds. How do we stay protected from that? And the writer of Hebrews says one of the ways you do it is people exhort you. And if you look at this verse 13 and 14, notice there's a connection. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Sin wants to deceive you to fall away. What is your protection? What is one way you are protected from being deceived and falling away? The church. The community of believers. This exhortation that we are to engage in together helps sustain our faith. And without this type of help from the Christian community, our soul is in danger. 
Is the church essential? Yes. Because without it, your soul is in danger. And you may say, wait, 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 David. My salvation is dependent on Jesus sustaining me. You've preached that before. Yes, and I affirm it. But what we have to realize is God ordains both the end and the means to the end. So God has ordained for every believer the end. We will be made holy. But He has also ordained the means by which we are sustained in growing in holiness to reach the end. And that means is the Spirit of God working in part through His church. You cannot strive for the end and not obey the means. You cannot say, God, I want the end promise. I don't really want to do this church thing. Because God has ordained both. He's ordained where He's taking you and He's ordained how He wants to get you there. So we are in danger without a community of faith. And let me just say, I don't mean we're in danger without coming to a building once a week. It's more than that. Let's talk about exhortation for a moment. Exhortation is a word that is rich in meaning. In your handout, exhortation is a verbal persuading, which means... It is related to words in some form or fashion. Exhortation is a verbal persuading that motivates someone to action. It is the use of words to motivate someone to act. And in this case, we're talking about it is the use of words to motivate us to holiness, to strive for holiness. We may exhort one another through speaking, through teaching, or preaching, or through conversation. We may exhort one another through the writing of a letter, or a blog, or a book. We may exhort one another through a text. We may exhort one another by making phone calls. People still do that. We may exhort one another through the sharing of God's Word. We may exhort one another through the sharing of a song. When it comes to exhortation, the Bible shows us that there are some people in the church that are supernaturally gifted to exhort one another. Romans 12.8. So exhortation is a spiritual gift. But, as with most spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts are given to people to help lead the church in their general calling. So exhortation is not just the responsibility of those gifted to do it. Exhortation is the responsibility of all the church toward one another. We see in the Bible that within the church, exhortation is one of the purposes of orderly worship. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about when we come together, there should be order in worship so that we as a church are exhorted and encouraged. So coming to a gathering like this, that hopefully is doing what we talked about last week, where God is moving among us and we're being purified in our worship by Jesus and His Spirit is empowering us, that type of gathering as a church will exhort us. But exhortation also happens in smaller gatherings, small groups, or personal relationships of people in the church getting together or 
having time for each other. Exhortation also takes many forms. Sometimes exhortation is an encouragement. It is us encouraging or someone encouraging us to keep going down the path we're going. Sometimes exhortation is a correction. It's us actually warning someone about the direction their life is taking. Or it's us giving them a correction of something that we've seen in their life that's not in line with God. Sometimes an exhortation is a comforting word in the midst of suffering. Someone speaks something comforting to you from the Word and it causes you to hold on in the midst of a trial. Sometimes an exhortation is an invitation to go deeper with Jesus. My entire life was changed by an exhortation given to me by a pastor who called me on the phone to say, I sense God wants to do something in your life. And I don't know what that is, but I'm going to offer you a chance to receive some training in our church, if you're willing. And there was a radical change in my life after that exhortation. So I want us to end looking at three essential keys to exhortation in the church. hope I've made the case to you biblically of the importance of it, but there are three keys that must exist in order for exhortation in the church to be fruitful. Number one, we have to be connected to the community. One of the essential keys to exhortation is you have to be connected. Exhortation is not possible outside of connectedness. And if you're loosely connected, you'll probably just have a little exhortation. The more connected we are, the idea would be the more exhortation we have. It requires that you give yourself to a fellowship of faith. It requires that you give yourself to a gathering of the believers in many different forms. It requires that we do the work necessary to build relationships in the church that are not just about friendships. Friendships in the church are great. I think our closest friends should be part of the faith family that we're in. But what we're doing here is not just trying to build friendships so that we can do social things together. The point is to build relationships that will allow for spiritual investment. We, we are aiming to build relationships where people will be investing in us through exhortation and we'll invest in them and it will be welcomed. Connectedness is a key for exhortation. Number two, an essential key to exhortation is we must be rich in the Word and the Spirit. You and I individually must be rich in God's Word and God's Spirit. We've talked about this already. Josh preached about it a few weeks ago as well. You and I should strive to walk closely with Jesus so that we are built up, so that we have abundant life in Him. But we also are supposed to walk closely with Jesus so that we can build others up. So that we have abundant life to share. Josh did a wonderful job of laying this out. But if, if, if we're merely listening to common worldly things and podcasts and music and, and what we take in entertainment, we have really no life to give anyone.
faced with a situation where we need to exhort a brother or sister who's standing before us, and all we can think of is, for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. A wonderful verse and a good truth. But we need a rich and abundant walk with Jesus so that we have a rich and abundant life to share. If you're not going deep in the Word, if you're not going deep in prayer, then you're not taking care to watch yourself and you won't have truth to exhort others with. And then number three, an essential key to exhortation is we must be wise in giving exhortation and we must be humble in receiving exhortation. And just so you know, if you wanted to transpose those, you could. It works the other way too. We need to be humble in giving and we need to be wise in receiving. Listen, knowing how to exhort someone properly with care and compassion and appropriate boldness takes time. It takes time for God to develop that. It takes prayer on our part and thought, thoughtfulness and understanding about how do I exhort someone And if you think that's hard, receiving exhortation from someone, receiving a word from someone, especially if it's a hard word, that takes even more time to be able to develop and receive. But these are lessons we have to learn together in the church. We need to give each other grace. We need to assume good intent, even if someone's words or their approach fall short. We're all learning together. But we need to be ready ourselves to grow. We have to make room for this in our lives. I don't know how many of you are subscribed to our podcast or if you listen to that, but the one that we did Friday that was released deals with this. From Ephesians 4, speaking truth in love. And we dive into the podcast about what does it mean to speak truth in love? What does that look like practically? So I would... Put that before you as a addendum to our teaching this morning. And next week's podcast is going to deal how do how do we receive correction in a right way. So, uh, Eli, you can come up. Three things for us in in ending. One, in answering this call to personal holiness. First of all, we need to come to Christ and receive holiness by grace through faith. It's where it begins. Now go back to what I've shared with you earlier today. If, if we're not growing in holiness, there's a problem. This is not about being religious. This is not about just rule keeping. It's about a changing of our heart. Have you received that changing of heart from Jesus? It's funny in the New Testament that if you've grown up in the South, like it, it's very common. Like you've been to churches and maybe you grew up this way. It's like at the end, you give an altar call. Would you come down? Would you ask Jesus into your heart? And, and I'm not saying that's wrong or if, if you came to know Christ that way that, that, that you really haven't come to know Christ. It's not what I'm saying. But you don't see that in the New Testament. You know what you see in the New Testament? You see Jesus looking at people and say, follow me. Follow me. Jesus is still saying that right now to all of us. Come follow me. Lay everything down. Come follow me. And you say, I don't know if I can lay everything down. And Jesus says, I'll help you. 
Just come follow me. Take the first step. This morning, if you've never come to know Christ, if you've never followed Christ, or if you could say, you know what, I, I know something of Christ, but I think it's mostly religious. Today, if you hear His voice, would you not harden your heart? Before you leave here today, would you come and talk to me? Or if, if I'm tied up or you don't want to talk to me, come talk to Nick. Talk to Kevin, talk to Rob, but come speak to one of us. If you come talk to me, I'm going to say, I'm going to get your contact information. I'm going to say, I'll call you tomorrow or even this evening and we'll talk. That's what will happen. Come to Christ, follow Him, receive holiness. Second, when you've come to know Christ with that new heart, answer the call to strive for holiness in the power of God. This is not an optional thing. Church, we must strive for the holiness without which we will not see God, Hebrews tells us elsewhere. So strive after it. Don't do it in your own power. Strive after it in the power of Jesus. And then thirdly, would you invest yourself in the church to do the mutual work of encouraging and exhorting others in holiness? Would you allow yourself to be invested in? But would you start just by every day God, who would you lay on my heart today to exhort? Maybe I'll call them. Maybe I'll send them a text. Maybe I'll, I'll do a letter. Maybe I'll speak to them if I'm going to see them later today. But would every day you just consider who, who can I exhort and encourage today? You guys can bring the lights down. This is an essential work of the church. Church is essential because holiness is essential and God has ordained a means to holiness. This being the exhortation of the church. We're going to end in prayer. This does not mean this is just the last few things we do before we're dismissed. We want to respond to what God is saying. We want to respond in prayer. That may be where you are, or that may be joining a prayer group in just a moment, up front. Let's not just sit. Let's not just... Start checking out and thinking about what's next. Let's respond to what God has said to us. Kevin's going to come. He's going to lead us in prayer. And then we're going to move back into worship as we pray together. Let's listen and answer God's voice.